Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Um, last time we were, um, uh, last week we were exploring, uh, working, practicing with uh, the theme of integrity. Any, how many people played around with that this week in there? practice. The rest of you didn't work with integrity at all. Okay, I got it. Uh, good luck. Uh, uh, <laughs> how did that feel? <laughs> Maybe we, can, we can go that way. Yeah. So the, the aim of, of all of this, remember, I just want to remind you, it's one thing to come and hear a talk and maybe have some uh, ideas. It's a whole other to just put it into practice, see what it's like. Because uh, all of the words of the Buddha or any Dharma talk or any book that you're uh, inspired by are pointing for you to look for yourself. There's that famous um, uh, phrase in the, in the discourse, in the uh, chanting, Ehi Pasiko, come and see for yourself. That's the, the Buddha's invitation. Don't trust anybody. Don't take anybody's word for it. Look for yourself and see what's true. See what leads to suffering. See what leads to happiness. Direct inquiry. So this week, we are going to be exploring um, letting go. Now, in, in Buddhist teachings, the Pali word is nekama. I've talked about this from time to time. Nekama, N-E-K-K-H-A-M-A. And it's usually translated as renunciation. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, does it? But actually, this is the way to the the highest freedom. Don't get trapped by the word. There's not a, uh, a feeling of martyrdom in what the Buddha is talking about. It's not that you're depriving yourself. It's not that you have to drop something like a hot potato or feel like you are um, really having to endure. The, there's a joy in simplicity. And this is uh, one of the main passages that um, I've always been inspired by in the Buddha's exploring of this quality. This is from a, a discourse I've, I've mentioned from time to time, where before he was enlightened, he sat down and he looked at his mind and he said he saw two classifications of thought. One kind of thought or class of thoughts had to do with thoughts of desire, of wanting, of ill will and cruelty. He looked at his mind and he saw those kinds of thoughts came up there. And he said when he saw those thoughts, 
they were very unpleasant. They led to, as the, the lines said, this leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from peace and freedom. And then he saw another class of thoughts that would come, and those had to do with non-ill will, or thoughts of kindness, non-cruelty, or compassion, and non-desire, or renunciation. And that's how it's uh, translated here. And he said, this thought I understood thus, this thought of re renunciation has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties, and leads to the highest happiness, nibbana. If you are familiar with the, the Four Noble Truths, probably most people here are familiar, maybe not all. There is suffering, is the first truth. The cause of suffering is this wanting, this grasping attachment in the mind. Maybe this will do it for me. Maybe this next, you can fill in the blank, will do it. Maybe you haven't heard, I just the story comes to mind that I haven't told in, in a while about Mullah Nasruddin. You know the story with, uh, with the peppers, there's this one uh, he goes out to the market, and there's uh, this really good deal on peppers, so good that he buys a barrel of them, goes home, and his students are around. This is this eccentric, wise man, uh, fool, who is a character in Sufi uh, teachings. And he puts, puts one in his mouth, and it's really hot keeps on chewing it, and his mouth is on fire, starts to tear up, finishes that one, and he goes for another one, puts it in, same, his mouth is on fire, finally gets through that, and he reaches for another one, and the, one of his students says, what are you doing, Mala? Why do you keep on eating those peppers? And he says, I keep waiting for a sweet one. And that's kind of what we do. Maybe the next one will do it for us. Not realizing that we are, that we are um, getting burned in the process. So this is the second noble truth that our grasping for the next hit that we think will do it for us will bring us peace. And the the interesting way the game is set up is that rather than getting burned and realizing, oh, that didn't do it, that for the fleeting moment that it feels good, if it feels good, it feels so good, or the end of that desire feels so good, even if it's just for a few moments, that we think, yeah, that is it. That was worth it. And so we try to put the 
experiences those pleasures enough together so that there's no gaps, which is a futile exercise because there's always a gap, and there it is, getting, uh, getting us seduced again. And we get seduced into thinking, maybe the next one. I always find it so curious that that's how we are wired up. You'd think we'd learn after the 10 millionth time that it doesn't quite do it. But think of, in our own life, let alone all the lives of, of all the people we know, and our society is built on fanning the flames of desire. You'd think that we could see through it, but it's such a powerful movement of mind thinking that's where happiness lies, that we get caught again and again and again. Even if we know better, we get caught. Can you imagine the people who don't have any clue that that's not where happiness lies? That's what was motivating the Buddha to teach in the first place. He saw all around everybody wanting to be happy and doing the very things that were leading to more suffering. That's what motivated him to, to teach. So if that's the, the cause of desire, that second noble truth, the third noble truth is the end of desire which is letting go, which is not getting seduced and feeling the freedom of complete balance of mind that's, that's at ease with things just as they are, that sees through that seduction to understand where real happiness lies. There's a, in the um, Zen tradition, there's story of this fellow who was uh, at the monastery for quite some time, and he kind of plateaued in his practice. And he asked the abbot if he could go up to the mountains and do a very long solitary retreat, because he really wanted to come to freedom. And then the abbot gave him permission. And on his way up the mountain, he comes across an old man carrying a stick and a, a bag of what looks like his worldly possessions. He doesn't realize that this old man is really Manjushri, who is the, uh, the bodhisattva of discriminating wisdom. And Manjushri is depicted with a sword that cuts through the illusion and visits when those who are ready and sincere are ripe to wake up. So there's something curious about this old man. And uh, the, uh, the monk says to him, uh, say, old man, uh, I'm, I'm going to seek enlightenment. Is there anything you can tell me, any words of wisdom about this enlightenment. And with that, Manjushri, the old man, drops his stick and worldly possessions and just lets go. And the monk was ready. He gets it, gets completely bedazzled, blown away, and free. After a while, 
he comes to and he says, and now what? And with that, Manjushri, the old man, picks up his stick and his worldly possessions, puts it on his shoulder, and just walks away. Because they're both true. It's not like you have to get rid of everything that you own and then you'll show how evolved you are. It's rather that you're not attached to your possessions. And then you can use them with freedom and enjoy them and use them for the benefit of others as well as yourself. It's so interesting to see how this works in, in retreat. I know a number of people have done retreats here, and uh, some people haven't. And sometimes I use examples from retreat, not because that's the only way that you see how the mind works, but it's so apparent. You see it's the crucible that shows you just the movements of mind. And so um, uh, some retreat observation to see how this works. So I remember in one of my uh, um, earlier retreats, uh, one of a, a long retreat in at IMS in uh, 1979, mm. I was hit by a major Vipassana romance attack. And this is before I met my wife, by the way, just want you to know. And there was the Vipassana romance. There's somebody who's bound to just catch your eye and you get into a full-blown fantasy about them you know, from uh, meeting them and having a courtship and getting married and having kids. You can even get divorced in your mind and you know, <laughs> go through it all. But when you're in the throes of a Vipassana romance, it's not something I would wish on somebody, but it happens. And there was somebody on the retreat who subsequently became a, a, a good friend uh, after, after some time. But on this retreat, it's like, and she sat right across from me in the, in the hall. I sat on the aisle, and she sat on the, no, I sat one end, and she sat right on the aisle. And it was, it was really, I'd sit down, and we just, mm, all these thoughts would come up. And, and it was, it got so bad that I started to, I decided I'd just sit in my room because I, I didn't need this, right? I was there to just, to just practice. And every time I'd see, mm, well, except you, you, you can't, you carry your mind with you wherever you go. So although the stimulus might be there or not there, you still, one thought in the mind, and it was uh, it was a very powerful lesson. And I, I thank her uh, very much for it. She didn't know, um, but there I was sitting in my room, just really finally getting some peace, some quiet, and centeredness. And all of a sudden, I could feel the thought coming from left field, you know. And this, w all it would take is one image and imagining, and it was like this wave coming through. And I would just note it. I decided, okay, here it is. This is my practice. What else to do than to watch my mind? And I'd notice desire, 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 desire. 
desire, desire. And it was, it was this crescendo that would be there for a while, three minutes, five minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, you know, just, just watching it. And after a while, if I stayed with it, really stayed with it, desire, desire, desire. Oh, okay, that one played out. Because if you're watching it and not fueling it, there's, you get some space around it. It has its own life and its own energy, but it comes and then it goes. And what was so uh, illuminating was the difference in my mind when it was there from the difference from when it finally left. It's like, oh, that feels so much better. We think, ooh, this is kind of titillating and, and tantalizing, and yeah, I'll just go with my fantasy, and you know, why not go with your fantasy, the mind says, except when you notice how it feels in the mind, it's tight, it's agitated. So sometimes it, it would feel like a, a claw coming out of my stomach or my leaning over. That one will do it. It's really unpleasant, as seductive as it, as it is. And in retreat practice, you can play around with it. You can play around with it in a number of different ways. Retreat practice or in, uh, uh, in your daily practice. On retreats, walking meditation. Really good example of this. There you are walking, minding your own business, and you can feel somebody coming in your space. It's really hard not to look. Who is that person? Friend, foe, uh, VR or VV. VV is Vipassana Vendetta, where <laughs> the, somebody just gets to you, you know. And they're, they're the problem in the retreat, you know. And you just want to look. Because we're very curious beings. This is one of the last things to go, by the way. You know, I, I've mentioned here that the judging mind and, and, uh, and the comparing mind is there until full enlightenment. It's the, even at the third stage out of four stages of enlightenment, there's the judging and comparing mind. Well, the restless mind is also there until the very end that looks outside for things. One of the last of the three fetters to go. So on the first time, first retreat I ever did, the first couple of retreats, actually, it, it wasn't only just noticing when somebody was going by. I had this inquisitive mind. I got to know everybody on the retreat, not saying a word to them, but you'd see the interview lists and who does what job, and you know, I I, I was hungry for entertainment, right? Oh, there's Bob who's the, the dishwasher, you know, and there's, you know. It was, it kept my mind very busy, right? Then I kind of cooled out. I kind of got the idea of, okay, I don't have to know everybody on the retreat. Um, 
then it would just be noticing people as they were walking by. And at one point, I, I realized just kind of like that same insight around the, the, the VR. What if I don't do this? What, what would it be like if I just let go of needing to see people? And in, in those days, I had my eyesight was really bad and it just a brilliant idea. Oh, what if I just take off my glasses? You know? It was great. I was so happy to have bad eyesight that I couldn't see. Oh, God. And then I could really focus in on my practice. And my, my eyes have gotten a bit better through some, uh, some procedures in the last, oh, 10 years or so. And now it's very simple. I just wear a hat and put it down, you know? I mean, that's the secret teachings, right? Just <laughs> put it down. It's so simple. And you think you're going to die if you don't look at this person and find out Whose socks are they again? You know, you see the socks. Who are they connected to? It's so much simpler. There's an ease in that letting go. Being a monk or a nun also has its own simplicity, where you don't have to make choices. Should I or shouldn't I go for ice cream? Oh. Four o'clock in the afternoon? No, we don't eat afternoon. That makes it very simple. Okay? And all of the, the rules make it easier to focus in on what's going on in your mind. Letting go, as I say, it's not a, a rejecting. It's really seeing what you don't need. It's seeing, it's distinguishing between what you want and what you need. You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to drink some water or drink, uh, have a drink if you're thirsty. You don't want to renounce to the point of not taking care of your body. But if you need something else, well, I would really go for, and you can fill in the blank, this uh, you know, strawberry lemonade. And water just doesn't do it. See, I'm getting thirsty again. <laughs> it's good. Water is really good. If strawberry lemonade is there, fine, enjoy it. But if you are saying, I need that, to make me happy, you are creating a lot of sufferings for yourself. So it's really a movement towards contentment with being, with what is here right now, instead of being seduced by the wanting mind. <clears throat> it's very interesting how much space is created when we see the joy of letting go. There's a, that feeling when you clean out your closet, and don't come into my house because there's some cleaning to do. But when I clean it, when there's some space, like, oh, God, it 
feels so good. Well, it's the same way whether it's the stuff or whether it's the clutter in your mind. It's getting rid of or not picking up the, all, the all the things that clutter your mind. So it's, it's not picking up the extra baggage of what you don't need. And we can be, we can have all kinds of ideas of what we think we need to be happy and um, not realize that we we're getting seduced. Sometimes we can have all kinds of ideas about our spiritual progress. I need to be mm, more disciplined. Okay, that's a good thing to be disciplined. But if you have this ideal, I need to be more than where I am, and you're not being realistic about it. I need to be, um, I need to be a saint. I need to be a very pure being. It's a wonderful aspiration. But if in the judgment you are attached to some kind of ideal that all, uh, all it does is create a sense of disparity between where you are and where you might be, this is a kind of um, healthy letting go. Not that you're not inspired, but that you don't have this extra pressure you put on yourself that only ends up in judgment. We can be very spiritually greedy just as we can be materially greedy. It's called spiritual materialism. One Tibetan teacher calls it. So there's a, there's a difference between inspiration and attachment. And that's a, a fine line for us to, to just come to some terms and, and feel, as Pema Chodron says, we can just start right where we are and see what do I really need to thrive? What's going to support me in thriving rather than feeling that we, we don't measure up? Mm. Sometimes we can feel that we are um, having to be uh, depriving ourselves if we're good Buddhists and we can suppress our vitality. This is another one that I, I know very well. You don't have to suppress your vitality. You don't have to say, oh, I shouldn't have fun. That's not what a spiritual person does. I got caught in that trap for a while. We can enjoy life, appreciate what's here, and when it's not, be content with, with what is. Mm. Letting go. This is a a practice that uh, Ajahn Sumedho talks about. I've, I've read this quote from time to time. It's been a while. I just love this quote about letting go, so I'll read it again. And Ajahn Sumedho, who's this really wise, wonderful, quotable monastic, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go, rather than 
try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books on and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> The Dalai Lama, I even somebody as high as, as him, talks about how his mind can get seduced. And he, he mentions about this one, uh, uh, one week where he was doing teachings down in Los Angeles. And every day on the way to the teachings, the, the driver would, uh, would um, stop and he would go and take a look at things in... Um, I think it was uh, an electronics store. Because he loves to see how things work. If you saw, what is it, Kundin or seven, I forget which one, when he was a kid, he was just really into science. And now he does all this work with the scientists. And he'd go in, and uh, he, he used to play with clocks a lot when he was a kid. And he'd go in and look at all these electronic things and what's the latest and that. And each day, he would become more and more fascinated. And by the end of, of his week, he said he never knew how many things he wanted that he didn't know were around before. You know. He could see, oh, that would be nice, and that would be nice. And could see the emptiness of it all. So we have to be really kind and uh, spacious and give ourselves a little slack when we get seduced by all the, the ads that we get. But it's unpleasant. It's very unpleasant. Mm. So there's a few different levels of letting go that I like to talk about. There's letting go of stuff, of simplifying where we see we don't really need all that much stuff. That's, again, one of the, the great joys of a monastic life. You have a bowl and a robe and food and medicine, and that's it. It, it always reminds me of uh, the, um, uh, the, the song from George, Por Porgy and Bess, I've got plenty of nothing, you know. He says, and he's singing, you know, I've got plenty of nothing and nothing plenty. I got my gal, got my song. Heaven the whole day long, no use complaining. What a freedom that is. I don't need a lock on my door. 
if you're in Berkeley, you need a lock on your door, probably. Um, how free that is. And when we give things away, you ever notice when you give something away, you pass it on, very rarely do you say, oh, I shouldn't have given that. Once it's gone, it's gone. And that is really the act of letting go. That's why generosity, and Ernie was talking about it before, it's the first paramita why it's so powerful because it is the act of letting go. It feels good to open up, let go, and also generosity has the added bonus of feeling a connection with others. So it's a powerful practice both of interconnectedness and that active letting go. <coughs> generosity is the full flowering of simplicity and renunciation. Then there's letting go of our expectations, ideas of how things are going to work out. This traps us tremendously. Because then we set up this kind of pass-fail test for life. Well, is it going to do it the way it's supposed to? Or is life going to be treating me unfairly? I hope, I hope. It's good to have some kind of vision, but when we're caught in seeing, will things work out? And I'm, uh, as, as many people know, an, an, an old uh, um, sports fan. So it's not over until it's over. I have a real tenacity um, and have a, yeah, just leave it at that, real tenacity. But once it's over, it's over. And it's such a freedom in ah, not holding on. At the end of a retreat, this is another time that I, I see it, it's when silence is broken in retreats. The first, first number of retreats I, I went on, and I, I just craved the silence. It was so sweet. And I would try to hold on to the last moment until finally I couldn't do it anymore. And, Okay, I'll talk. And then it would just, my mind would come crashing in and it was like, whoa, swirling around. And, and it, was, uh, it was a very um, powerful understanding as I started to get how beautiful it is at some point to just consciously, when the silence is broken, just open up and let it go. Much better than the crash of holding on tightly until the last moment. So letting go of our expectations, letting go of how we think things should be, letting go of our stories. This is one of the main areas where we see the suffering that we create for ourselves. All the stories we have. I'm somebody who can never and fill in the blank. Or they always, anytime you're hearing always and never, that's a tip-off that you are enmeshed in a particular story. Because it's very rarely always and never. Can you let go of your story about who you are, about who somebody else is, about how you think things should be? Just ask you right now, 
So close your eyes for a moment. What story do you believe, either about yourself or about life, what story do you believe that keeps you from experiencing well-being and joy? If there's any belief or story that keeps it keeps you contracted or that limits who you think you are or who you really are by your thoughts. And if you get in touch with the story, what would it be like if you saw it as just a story? and could let it go. Just imagine the freedom of not being bound by that story. And what would you need to understand or remember in order to let it go? What would you need to understand or remember in order to let it go? Maybe we'll just, uh, I have a, a bit more to say, but how about if we just uh, see if there's any comments from, from the, from any of you on that reflection. For details, but see. Snagging you, that you're holding on to, what it would be like. Freeing. Freedom. What's that? I had a there we go. I had a whole, whole group of things, and and uh, some of them, some of them were easier than others, um, but a, a lot of them I I hadn't uh, held them and owned them as stories yet. I was in even more primitive state, 
the idea of getting in, getting into a narrative. Uh, yeah, and and uh, it, it's wonderful, you know. But 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 so wonderful and amazing. It's like I I couldn't. It, it's like I can't imagine it happening, you know. It's it's hard. Yeah. The the first is just is just imagining. That's that's a key piece. Imagining that capacity. And uh, what would uh, anything that you you came up with that you that would help you if you remembered to uh, to let go. That even the deepest, darkest suffering is impermanent. Even the darkest suffering is impermanent. So what you say a bit well, as I prepare for a daughter to possibly move to the other part of the country for college, um, it stirs up a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, that even a spouse dying, children moving away, that it, it you know, the, the pain is impermanent. Here, turn that one off and then just hold on thinking that if I let go, it will be too painful. That, that's the in incredible paradox. If I, hold, if I hold on, I'll be okay. And if I let go, it will be unbearable when that's where the freedom is. You know that uh, you've probably heard about the, the monkey trap that's it's used in Asia. It's such a good illustration of, of this, where they, they take a, a coconut and cut off one end, hollow it out, put in some sweets. Monkey comes along, smells the sweets, and slips its hand in, grabs the sweets, but the hole is big enough for the monkey to put its hand in, but too small to remove fistful of sweets, it's a very effective trap. It's a really rare monkey that figures it out. All it has to do is let go of the sweets, slip its hand out, and it's free. That's our predicament. We think if I hold on or if this next, this maybe this next thing will do it, then I'll be happy not realizing it's the holding on that's creating our pain, our suffering. Mm. Anybody else as far as what they would remember? What would help support that? Yeah, Santiago, it's good to see you here. I think, uh, hello, yep. Uh, the subjects that you have been talking about, I think it's relatively easy to pick up the message, but uh, I, what happens with the desire to be loved and if you are in the process of missing that, that to me is not an answer what you're talking about. I mean, if, if you keep searching, no? <laughs> but I mean, I, I keep searching, you see, 
and your principle there does not apply. So, yeah. Hey, you can turn it off. Um, so, it's one thing about an object, uh, an experience. It's another, that deep yearning to be loved. Is that what you're talking about? There's nothing wrong with a, with a, um, a wish to be loved. But just like with um, wanting to be uh, living with integrity, it can be inspiring or it can be suffering. It's not the aspiration, it's the degree of contraction there is. So if you're tight, and there that's the difference between, say, loving kindness and attachment. The near enemy of love or loving kindness is attachment. There is this interesting paradox. When you're, say you're around somebody who is loving, who just somehow has this, knows how to love, not wanting anything from you, but just expressing, being a, having a, a, a love that radiates from them. How do you feel being around them? Probably pretty good, right? If somebody else is yearning to be loved and in the extreme, desperately wanting to be loved, where you can feel that contraction which is coming out of fear, how does it feel to be around them? You might have compassion, but there's not an invitation to move into that space. So it's it's a kind of, you probably have heard of the law of attraction, whether you relate to that phrase or not. But it is a basic principle that the energy that you put out will come back to you. That's, that's on one level. Okay. Now, as far as finding the person of your dreams, you know, that, that's, that's something to really be, uh, to be respected and to have an aspiration for. But if we think that until I find this person, I won't be whole, um, then there's a lot of suffering. So I don't have an easy answer, but I will say that the degree of contraction not only is suffering inside, but it's a particular energy that goes outside. And the first relationship, the primary relationship, is to feel whole within yourself. Because then you're coming to the relationship with something to, uh, to offer and to share rather than uh, something to get. Uh, and it's not an easy one. You know, I, I can't say that I've, I, I have you know, the ultimate answer on that but to see how much suffering you want to cause, your, how much suffering you are causing, one is causing oneself, and see if there's another possibility. Like maybe even the story that says, I need this if I'm going to be 
Yeah, if you, yeah, that's, that's how uh, it works. So let me just uh, ask you, reflect on uh, one other thing before we, before we go. I can find it here. So as far as um, um, uncomplicating your life, which is really what this joy of letting go is about. What is making my life complicated these days? What would I need to do to simplify in this area? What would I need to let go of? Whether it's Habits that don't serve me or stuff that gets accumulated. What would I need to bring my life into balance a bit more? And just see, perhaps, as you go through this week, practicing as I know you all, we all are. Pick one practice that might make it uh, doable that you just wake up to. It doesn't mean that you'll never get hooked again, but just to incline the mind to wake up and see how that holding on works and see about another possibility. Just give yourself practice in letting go. It can be as simple or as challenging as not looking at email until an hour after you wake up or, or, the, or a day or not turning on the TV quite the same <laughs> time that you usually do. Or just see. It can be simple. Because all it is is you start to incline the mind and see how good that feels. And uh, you're doing it not to deprive yourself, but just to give yourself another option. I'm going to pick one right now, so I invite you to pick something. Give yourself a practice. Have an image of yourself actually going through this as a practice. Just notice how it would feel. It's not a pass-fail test. It's something to bring some more well-being into your life. many people came up with something? Okay. We won't ask you what, <laughs> but you know within yourself. Just try it as an experiment, just for the fun of it, for the, the joy of it, the joy of letting go. A little bit of restraint 
a little bit of restraint, not to deprive yourself, but to give yourself that feeling of um, empowerment. Gendon Rinpoche, mm, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. So let's close with uh, short loving kindness. Mm. Just feel your own goodness in your heart. Even if it might not be there as much as you'd like, get in touch with your own goodness. And breathe in benevolent energy from life. Breathe it right into your heart and let it fill your body and support you. Life wants to support you if you invite it. And breathe out and surround yourself with a kind, benevolent energy. Wish yourself well. May I feel all the goodness inside. May I learn more and more the power of letting go, the joy of letting go, of content with what's here. May I share my love more. And then extend these thoughts to everyone here, everyone in your life, all beings everywhere. As I want to be happy, may all be happy. May all find peace inside. May all feel their love and share it well. May all awaken to their true nature remember who they really are. May our coming here together have a beneficial effect for myself, everyone in my life, everyone who I arise, and all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. Enjoy your experiment. We'll see next week how it turned out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.